As we transition to our uh, to our sermon time, I want to um, first of all say a quick word of thanks to you all for greetings that you have uh, offered to me at our marking of two years. It's crazy that yesterday was two years since I joined you as your pastor. And so I just want to say thank you for uh, the way that you all have welcomed me in these last two years and walked alongside me in ministry as we have been in ministry together. I think it's an exciting time as we go forward. Um, we never could have predicted that we would be where we are now, but this is where we are and we are here together. Friends, I am continuing this morning our summer series, Broken and Beautiful, from Paul's letter to the Romans. Our scripture lesson this morning is from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Listen for the word of God for us today. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah, who is over all, God-blessed forever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts bring you glory this morning. Help us to draw nearer to you and to love you more deeply this day. Amen. We put a lot of pressure on ourselves in so many ways. When I think about our high school graduates, they're all extremely accomplished. They've racked up AP credits and scholarships and GPAs that are impressive. They're going to fantastic schools, and we know they're going to do exceedingly well. And I know that many parents and coaches and teachers put a lot of pressure on young people to do well. But I also know that when I talk with parents, particularly about school, very often I hear about the pressures that their children put on themselves, pressure that becomes so very linked to their identity. And this, of course, can continue and does continue through life. We've all known people who seem to not care about what others think. But I think even if they're being honest, and if we're being honest, many of us do put pressure on ourselves especially when we compare ourselves, our jobs, our homes, our children, our bodies, our whole lives, really, to other people, to some sort of ideal that we've created. And again, being very honest about this, I actually think there's some good that can come from this sort of self-motivation, right? There's some good that can come as we nudge ourselves along and strive to do better. Pressure can be helpful. Pressure, though, can be harmful, but it can also be helpful. And it can be encouraging in terms of giving us goals for growth. 
So it isn't a surprise to me that when it comes to our faith, we also tend to put pressure on ourselves and not just on ourselves, but on our children, on others in our family, and even on strangers. As many of you know, I used to attend a lot of hockey games back in San Jose, and I would usually walk from my condo to the games. There was this sea of people that would be walking along the sidewalks. And as we would walk to the games, we always passed a man on a street corner standing on a wooden crate with a terrible amplification system who was yelling through the amplification system that we were all going to hell. Sometime, somehow when I was walking past this man, it always felt like he was looking me in the eyes when he said it. He was literally there outside of every game. And something in this man, some strange motivation, led him to this extremely ineffective exertion of pressure as though he would tap into the existential fears of most of humanity, the fear of what will come after I die, and, and with that, this fear of some judgment. We all know, of course, that most people would walk right by this man, almost tune him out, fading into the sounds of the horns honking and the chance of support of our team on the walk to the stadium. But people would talk about him, never really in a positive light, but he was a fixture on the street corner and over and over again, he was hawking a sort of Christian-ish message about human depravity, placing pressure again on each of us to do something different, something that would change our present fate, something that would turn the ship around. And you've heard these phrases before and they're usually cast in terms of being lost and found, right? organizations, ministries will say that they are working to seek and find the lost. Many, uh, meaning people who've been lost, of course, from salvation, lost from Jesus, lost from God. And on many levels, this makes sense. We see throughout scripture, the references to finding the lost sheep or the lost coin. We hear Jesus talking about seeking the lost. But there's a huge difference between Jesus seeking the lost and this man shouting on the crate, right? Because the, the biggest difference, the biggest difference is that we are given the good news that Jesus finds the lost. Jesus finds what he's looking for. We heard it last week. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Trying to use fear to return us to Jesus when Jesus already has us, when Jesus already holds us, when Jesus already has us closer than we can ever draw to God ourselves, it, it creates a real problem for our attitude of, of trying to earn salvation or our desire that others would earn salvation or come to Jesus as though it is our ability to do what Christ has already done. It's problematic when we try to do the work that Jesus did perfectly on the cross. And friends, not just in our judgment of other people, but also ourselves. You see, that existential fear that the man on the crate taps into, it's a legitimate fear. It's a fear that many of us have for ourselves and for those we love. 
Much of this fear, though, I think comes from the tactics that were used by the church, the, the fire and brimstone tactics designed to bring people into the church by creating fear that if you didn't listen and do the things that they said to do, that you would be subjected to damnation forever. The reality is that that street preacher sounded a lot like the churches of our parents and our grandparents and even many churches today. And in some ways, the idea of fear as a lure to faith, it still dominates the view that many people have both inside and outside of the church, their view of Christianity. But how do we reconcile this with Christ? Christ who takes the pressure off of us. Christ who takes the pressure upon himself. Christ in whose broken body the pressure was removed from you and from me and instead replaced with the open arms of a risen Savior, arms in which we are held, arms of one who loves us so deeply and dearly like a newborn being held in the comforting skin-to-skin embrace of their new parents. Paul's sadness in our text this morning and the sadness that many of us feel when we see people who are living their lives in a way that seems to reject God, this shouldn't be a fear that they are somehow beyond God's love. Paul's anguish and his sorrow and his pain is because he wants the joy of being a child of God to be a joy that is experienced by everyone. His anguish is rooted in his own experience of learning and knowing that Christ loves him, even him. His anguish is in his understanding of God's abundant love for him, and his anguish is in his earnest hope that others, that all others, would know the love that God has for them. And that in knowing the love of God, in knowing and experiencing Christ's love, they would then choose, not out of fear, but out of abundant joy to be a part of God's story in the world. This is the key, my friends. Fear is cheap. Fear is easy. It's so much easier to motivate with fear. But motivation with fear is hollow and empty, and it dies. True motivation learning about the risen Christ, drawing nearer to God and coming to a true belief in God, experiencing God's love in others, but also in a connection to God. This stirs a fire within us that cannot be extinguished, a fire that becomes inseparable from our individual identity and deeper than any fears that would motivate. This, my friends, is our invitation as a church. This is our hope for our children. This is the beacon We were called to be. In the mystical book of Revelation in the Bible, there is this dramatic imagery. And in chapter seven, there's a description of four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And then there are other angels that appear. And then 144,000 people appear. And this is what John writes about what he sees after the 144,000. He writes, after this, I looked and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation 
from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God. Friends, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. When it comes to our faith, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to have things figured out to seek knowledge of salvation and to, to know whether we're going to go to heaven or not, of whether we've done the right things in our life to earn somehow salvation. Our fears and our lamentations and our brokenness, we bring that all. But like the great multitude lifting up their voices to God and like Paul who wants everyone to know the joy and wonder and beauty of the saving grace of Jesus Christ, my friends, may we find beauty in the realization that salvation, our salvation, belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb, the Lamb who takes away all sin, and who is over and above all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.